Good morning. How are you? <laughs> yeah, like uh, Tom said, go ahead and open the scriptures if you have them. Uh, turn them on, flip them open, scroll to the book of Isaiah. Or uh, no, not Isaiah, Obadiah. What am I thinking? Oh, man. Is this, can I still say it's early? Is that a good excuse? No? Okay. Um, my name is Todd, and I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here at Door of Hope. And uh, normally during second service, I'm downstairs right underneath you over in this corner uh, with our students, with our youth. And so uh, it's a joy to be with you this morning in second service. This is the first time I've ever been in second service. And you guys are beautiful. Well done. Good job. Uh, Glad you're here. So uh, let's flip to the book of uh, Obadiah. And I do want to say really quickly, Tom mentioned it, but we had a a volunteer, a little volunteer appreciation party on Friday night. And it was awesome. We had hot dogs and pie. Uh, It was was so good. And I will, uh, none of them are in here. Um, but I will uh, just brag on the youth volunteers. I am biased, and I think the youth volunteers are the best volunteer crew in our church community, followed up by the coffee team in a close second. And so if you see somebody that's serving today, just say thanks. Um, and if you, if you do serve, thank you so much. We appreciate you. And hopefully uh, Friday night was good and fun, and you felt... Um, that you felt treasured and honored. So, uh, with that said, um, we're going to continue on in our, in our series, uh, Finding Jesus. Oh, there it is. Finding Jesus in the Minor Prophets. And um, the Minor Prophets is this small section, we've been in it for the last few weeks, is this small section of the Hebrew Bible where there are 12 uh, books that are actually are made up of one book or one scroll, and they kind of all go together and fit together. And this morning, we're going to look at Obadiah. And it's the shortest one. It's the shortest book in the Hebrew Bible. It's just 21 verses long. But I would argue that um, it is just as relevant today as it was in Obadiah's time. And uh, the hope that Obadiah had and the hope that we'll see in the book is the same hope that we have today still. And we stand... Uh, in different places than Obadiah. Uh, we stand on this side of the cross, and Obadiah didn't have the, uh, the joy of seeing uh, Jesus on the cross. But my goal today is to convince you that it matters, that Obadiah matters, that his words, uh, God's words through Obadiah matter, and they mean something for us today, almost uh, 2,500 years later. Uh, so let me pray before we go any further. Jesus, this morning we look to you as our king. And Jesus, uh, I'm grateful and I'm humbled that you were convinced that these scriptures point to you. And Jesus, our hope this morning is to see how this small section of uh, your Bible, uh, the Hebrew Bible, points to you, Jesus. Um, I pray that you would open our eyes this morning. I pray that you would encourage us. I pray that you would bring us hope uh, through the words, um, through your word, uh, through the scriptures, and through the word of God, uh, Jesus himself. Jesus, we love you, and we lift you up this morning as our king. 
Amen. So in this series so far, we've, we've covered just a few books, and they fit into this larger scheme of the uh, Old Testament prophets. And I, I don't know how much you know about the Old Testament prophets. And they're notoriously hard to define what a prophet is and what, it was, and what the prophet was doing. But I think this morning, uh, what's helpful is just to remember that the prophets were uh, calling out offenses against the good creator God, nations that stood outside of relationship with the, uh, the good creator God, and the nation that was in covenant relationship with the good creator God, Israel. They were calling out against offenses against this God and the nations that were perpetuating these offenses, calling them to faithfulness, that be faithful to the creator God of Israel. And Obadiah is no exception. And uh, part of grasping Obadiah and where it sits in the Hebrew Bible, I think there's an important theme that will help uh, hopefully turn some light bulbs on. Um, But it's the theme, the biblical theme of kingdom, and in particular, God's kingdom. And you can trace this idea of kingdom all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. That there is a good creator God, that he made this world that we exist in now, and he made us, and he called it good. And that the, the sole hope and intention of God was to enjoy his good creation alongside human partners. That God has crowned every single human being with a crown of glory and honor. And we have immense, immense responsibility in God's good world to see God as the good creator king and come under his submission. And that when humans are in right relationship with God, only then can they rule in God's good world faithfully and rightly. And this is where it begins, that God deeply desires to walk with human beings that he crowned as image bearers and kings and queens over his creation. He desires to be in relationship with them to create his kingdom, to rule over his good creation. And you can trace this theme all the way, uh, really from the beginning of the scriptures to the end of the scriptures. But we know in chapter 3 of Genesis, how does it go? Not good. That the humans take it upon themselves to define uh, what's good and what's not good on their own terms. That they, they forfeit what God has given them, and they rule, they attempt to rule in creation apart from God. And this culminates in, in Genesis chapter 11, it culminates in a city, in a nation. Does anybody know what it's called? Genesis chapter 11. In Babylon. The humans rebel. Yeah. (laughs) The humans rebel against the good creator God, and they set up their own kingdom. And this kingdom is called Babylon, and it is just the epitome of a proud human kingdom that's come about through violence, through oppression, through slave labor. It's marked by oppression and violence. And this morning, as we jump into Obadiah, I think this, this concept of God's ideal good kingdom 
but the reality of the human kingdoms that form as humans break away from the good creator God and attempt to rule and reign outside of a relationship with him, the reality is Babylon. This is what we end up with. And so we jump in Obadiah verses 1 through 14, and this is what we read. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations, and you shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And you're seeing it right here. A proud human kingdom has formed. The pride of their hearts have deceived them. But apparently, God will have nothing to do with it. Not only will we have nothing to do with it, he will undo it. I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And this is where we pick up the theme of kingdom. This is much later than Genesis 1, 2, and 3, where we first learn about kingdom, Genesis 11 and Babylon. This is much later. But you should have this theme in your mind, this thread in your mind. And I was thinking about this and and trying to think of ways to explain this to help uh, turn some light bulbs on as we read Obadiah. And I realized that this dynamic, uh, human kingdoms and the experiment that are human kingdoms, is happening uh, in my own house. I have two, uh, two kids, and I'm married and I have two kids, and uh, a four-year-old boy and a seven-year-old boy. And I was thinking about this, and my wife and I took a weekend, and we decided to uh, uh, try to f- fancy up our boys' room. They share a room together. And we tried to fancy up their room, and, we, you know, we got them some new beds, we got them some new furniture, we painted, we got, like, the cool Millennium Falcon Star Wars rug, and set up, like, Lego play area, and bookshelf, and all this stuff. And it was our joy. We, we made it and saw that it was good. <laughs> and it was our joy to to give them dominion in their room. It was our joy. And we said, hey, dudes, uh, so here it is. Have fun. Play. Like, it's all yours. Um, if you need help, mommy and daddy are here. Uh, here's, here's how uh, you exist in your little kingdom. Uh, be kind to one another. Pick up after yourself. Be grateful. Take care of things. Steward this well. And on a good day, it's when it's happening, it's awesome. They play together, they build forts, and they make Lego creations, and they read, and it's a cozy spot for them to sleep, and all is good. But <laughs> when it's not good, it's really not good, and, and then we have a dog, and then you add a beast of the field into the mix, it gets like, it gets crazy, and it becomes it becomes this. 
Uh, can we, let's go to verses 10 through 14. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. <laughs> now, now, let's read verses 10 through 14. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. And for Obadiah in his time, The two kingdoms that are at play here are Israel and Judah, in particular, and Edom that we're reading about. And the interesting thing is, where do these kingdoms come from? Who are they descendants of? Does anybody know this? This It's like Jacob and Esau. This is Jacob and Esau's descendants in Genesis chapter 25 through 27. So these two brothers have essentially given birth to kingdoms, and they're at each other. And what's happened is Babylon, the big bad kingdom that we learn about in Genesis 11, has come in to Judah and ransacked it and pillaged it and destroyed it. And while this is happening, Esau's, or Jacob's brother Esau and his kingdom, descendants, they capitalize on it. And instead of helping their brother and their family member, they capitalize on it, and they steal, kill, and destroy along with Babylon. And I realize this, it's not this extreme, of course, but this is what happens in our house. You know, on a good day, it's unbelievable what the boys can do and how they get along and how um, peaceful and how much joy there can be. But on the bad days, it's steal, kill, and destroy. It's Lego missiles firing, and it's, you know, markers and crowns and boogers on the wall, and, you know, somebody's, I don't, we don't know if it's the dog or one of the boys, but somebody's, like, peed on the floor, and there's, like, screaming and crying coming out of the room, and it's his fault. No, it's his fault. This is the reality, and you're seeing it play out on a national level in the scriptures, that this is the condition of humanity. This is the condition of the human heart. This is where we're led to. And part of grasping and placing Obadiah is understanding and tuning into this, this biblical theme of kingdom. And how, again, how humans inevitably give birth to proud, violent human kingdoms. Do you know of any kingdom today that is founded on violence, that was, um, is, systems are inherently against one or more groups of people, that is racked with oppression and poverty and injustice. Is this still a thing today? Yeah. This This is the world that we live in. It was Obadiah's world, and I would argue it's still 
our world today. And again, when, when we look at, and, and again, you ask why, and the fundamental core of this story is that humans have rebelled against the good creator God and set up their own kingdom and their own pride. And they're deceived. They think it's going to work, and it's not going to. And not only will, is it not going to, uh, like we read in verses 1 through 4, God will unravel it. He will not have it. And then we move on to verses 15 through 16. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. And not only will God unravel it, but apparently this is, this is justice, this is judgment. That as these human kingdoms have perpetuated violence and injustice within the kingdom and against other kingdoms, that measure that we've extended to our fellow humans, it will be measured against us. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. And in Obadiah, what kingdom is being, what kingdom is being uh, judged? Edom. But now in verse 15, we've switched to all nations. And we remember earlier in the uh, prophets, what kingdom is primarily the focus of the prophets? That they've turned into a violent human kingdom a proud human kingdom, and that they will be undone. They will be exiled. What kingdom? Israel. God's own people. This family that God had chosen because he loved them. That God had chosen to use to bring blessing to the whole world and to be different than these kingdoms. They've turned into the same kingdom. I mean, it's, it's tragic. Israel themselves... God's own people have turned into these violent, proud human kingdoms. And then we realize it's an indictment that stands against all humanity. That not only God's covenant family, but families and kingdoms that stand outside God's covenant family are under this judgment. Who can stand in front of the good creator God? This is the, this is the crushing reality of Obadiah's vision, that all nations, all humanity will be held to this. And then again I ask, who can stand? I surely cannot. But then we, we remember God's goodness and his commitment and his love for his world. He made it and he saw that it was very good. And he loves humanity. He loves his creation. He is a hundred percent committed to seeing it through and establishing his good kingdom. And then that's where we go to verses 17 through 21 in Obadiah. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. 
the house of Esau's stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zephyrath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shepherd shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. That last line. The entirety of the kingdom will be the Lord's. God is committed to having a kingdom, a good kingdom. It will be his. And just think, if you're, if you're in the nation, or if you're under the oppression of the nation, this is hope that God's kingdom will come, because it inevitably means that the human kingdom that you're in, uh, or that you're under, will be unraveled. His kingdom will come, and he's a good God. And so we walk away from, the, from Obadiah, we walk away from the prophetic books, the Hebrew Bible, uh, Lamentations, all, all these books, we walk away with this hunger and thirst for God's kingdom. God's covenant family is ravaged. The, the surrounding kingdoms, even the kingdoms that are related, Jacob and Esau, they're at each other. It's a, it's a mess. God, when is your kingdom coming? It will be yours when. This is, this is Obadiah's hope, that the wrongs will be made right, that God's kingdom will come. And we're left here. But we are in a different position than Obadiah. We stand on this side of this man named Jesus of Nazareth. And we fast forward to uh, Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus of Nazareth shows up, and what is the phrase that is first and foremost on Jesus' lips? Repent or turn for what? The kingdom of God is at hand. And so let's go to, uh, let's go to the next slide, Matthew four twenty-three through 5, verse 10. And so Jesus has just gotten out of... Um, uh, he's been victorious over temptation uh, with the devil, the accuser, the Satan. And he comes out and he starts proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then we pick up here. And he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel or the good news of the kingdom. And healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, and those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. And seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and Jesus opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or it's fair to interpret that as kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The hope that Obadiah had, here it is, Jesus announcing the good news that God's kingdom is here. It's come. It's right there. And this, this was the phrase that was on Jesus' lips most consistently. And Jesus wasn't mounting a violent rebellion because we know who, who rebels violent, violently against other nations. Proud human kingdoms do. And what, interestingly enough, what human kingdom did Jesus come up in? The Roman Empire. And this is hope because the people that were looking for God's kingdom, for relief from being a part of or under the oppression of violent, proud human kingdoms, their hope is here. God's kingdom has come. And then we keep reading in Jesus' story, in his ministry, in his life. And do you remember the part in Obadiah where the proud human kingdoms will be brought down, they will be unraveled? And the judgment, the uh, as you have done, it will be done to you. And we learn uh, in, the, in the life of Jesus that Jesus himself took upon this judgment on behalf of all the nations. The judgment that was due over all the nations, the judgment that was due over humanity, that it was coming, Jesus himself shouldered it on the cross. That this is what he was uh, absorbing on the cross. And look at what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 13 through 15. And you, all of us, were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, and God made alive together with him, Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, and this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And keep in mind that the kingdom that Jesus came up in, the Roman Empire, at the time, I mean, there was no one greater. There was no one more advanced. There was no one more sophisticated. And Jesus exposed the hollowness of the Roman Empire. That God himself entered into humanity in Jesus as a truly innocent, perfect human. And what did this advanced uh, civilization, this advanced, progressive 
human kingdom due to Jesus, they murdered him. And the Apostle Paul sees it as putting these kingdoms to shame, to exposing what they're really about, what's at the core of these kingdoms, how these kingdoms operate and how they function, what they're built on. It's exposed on the cross. And in, in utter paradox, this is Jesus' victory over the proud human kingdoms. And the judgment that was due over all of us has been forgiven. Forgiven us all our trespasses. And Jesus is not, and eventually it's revealed that Jesus is not just announcing God's kingdom, but that he himself is the king of God's kingdom. And not only is he the king of God's kingdom that has come and is at hand, what kind of king is he? He is a humble king. He is the antithesis of the proud human kingdoms and the proud human rulers. Jesus is the good, humble king that gave his life. And then we turn to Paul again in Philippians 2, 1 through 11. And Paul's talking to followers of Jesus here. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, in Jesus, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is king, and he's a different king. He's not a proud king. He's not a violent king. He's a humble king, and he loves us deeply. And this is the scandal that Jesus revealed in, within the Roman Empire. And we go back to Obadiah. This is the condition of our world. It's not hard to find yourself participating in or being run over by a proud human kingdom. This is the reality of our world. And the hope that Obadiah had that these kingdoms would fall, they do rise and fall, that God would unravel the systems of injustice and oppression, of violence, of stealing, killing, and destroying, that God would put an end to it. 
that judgment would come, that the rights would be made wrong, and that God's kingdom, his eternal everlasting kingdom would come and be established. And here it is. It's Jesus was unbelievably convinced that he was ushering in God's good eternal kingdom. And not only was he ushering it in, he paid for the judgment that fell on all of us, and he is king. This is good news. That God does not hate you. God loves you. And Jesus is the good, humble king. And then comes the hard question. If, if we follow Jesus, if we follow the good, humble, servant king, is this what the king's people look like? This way of life was made available to us in Jesus and in Jesus alone. And he fills us with our spirit. He's not dead. He raised from the dead. God vindicated him and gave Jesus the full stamp of approval. Is this what we're marked by? And I know the, the analogy or the illustration of my four and seven-year-old boys in their, like, mini-kingdom um, it's funny, but I, it's funny to put on them, but if I'm honest, I, the same is true of me and my relationship with others and my relationship with my family. But in Jesus, we're forgiven. He's taken all that upon himself. And this morning, I would just invite you to come to Jesus as the announcer of the kingdom of God, that he is king and that he loves you and that you are free to not participate in the violence, that you are free to love your enemy, that you are free to be in right relationship with the good creator God, that you are free to live a life of service and humility and self-giving love. You are free to do that. This is good news, and it will not perish This kingdom that God has set up is everlasting. It will not go away. It will be established. And then there's the reality that Jesus has come and he lived and he was murdered and hung on a cross and buried and he raised from the dead. And we're still in this strange period of the inauguration of God's kingdom and the coming of the king and the invitation to follow the good king, but we find ourselves in a world full of proud human kingdoms. And this is the way forward, to follow the good, humble king. And this morning I would just invite you that this is good news, that he loves you, that this is the way forward, that our lives would look like the humble king, that they would look like Jesus And the only way that happens is if we are in submission under the good, humble king. What Obadiah hoped for and knew would happen, we we are on the other side of the inauguration of it. We see it in Jesus, in King Jesus. And I pray that this would be good news to you. This is the good news of the kingdom of God.
that God is committed to his good world, that he loves it deeply, that he will not stand for the proud human kingdoms that we perpetuate, and that he's begun the process of restoring everything in the king, in Jesus. Is this good news? I think it is. Let's pray.